in 605 B.C., a man named Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, sent his very powerful army, along with a bunch of very powerful mercenaries from Chaldea, to conquer the kingdom of Judah. He came up against the fortified city of Jerusalem, and after defeating King Jehoiakim of Judah, he carried away into captivity some of the cream of the crop of the young men of the kingdom of Judah. Men, young men who were very healthy, very intelligent and well-schooled, and also from wealthy families, royal families. One of those young men was named Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar continued either to conquer or to form alliances with pretty much every kingdom of consequence in his day. The breadth of his influence over men and nations was staggering, and he knew it, and he was very pleased about it. But what he didn't understand yet was that he controlled absolutely nothing. And then God set about teaching him that critically important lesson. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a very troubling dream. And then he showed Daniel, the young man, the interpretation of the king's dream. The dream was a warning from God to Nebuchadnezzar that he was about to be brought very, very low until he came to the point where he humbled himself before the mighty one. Daniel respectfully but very strongly advised Nebuchadnezzar that he might just manage to avoid this painful humbling if he would only humble himself first before God and act with righteousness and mercy toward his people. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't heed Daniel's warning. The narrative in Daniel chapter 4 picks up at verse 30 a full year after that warning. And it says that one day Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his royal palace and he said to himself, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal house by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? That's what God calls pride. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, To you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you. It's on, it's on, John. Until you recognize that the Most High is over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, Why, what hast thou done? And Nebuchadnezzar said again, At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began to seek me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. You notice he's in the passive mode in all of that. All these things are being handed to him. And then he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. As we look this morning at what the book of Proverbs and a number of other passages have to say about what God thinks of man's pride, we're going to find out that he is not only able to humble those who walk in pride, he is willing. The world in which we live considers pride in oneself and in one's accomplishments to be among the highest of virtues. It congratulates the proud. It idolizes the proud. Athletes boast about their physical prowess, and the ones who boast the loudest often end up with the best positions and the highest dollar advertising contracts, because pride sells in this culture. Actors and actresses soak up the praise of men and use their entertainment credentials as a bully pulpit to preach to the masses the denial of all that God holds dear. And the culture praises them even more enthusiastically for doing so. In Nebuchadnezzar's day, a powerful king might believe that he had cause to boast. But in our day, our culture is filled with men bent on being sovereign over their own lives and seeking desperately to control their circumstances and their station in life so that they can hold on to their own little kingdoms. The arrogance, the hubris, the self-exaltation of men today would make Nebuchadnezzar blush. But here's something that hasn't changed. God is not only able to humble those who walk in pride, He is willing. I'm going to cite just a few of the hundreds of verses in the Bible that tell us the inevitable outcome of either pride or humility. And we'll see that those two outcomes are radically, radically different. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. Proverbs 16, verses, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty, a prideful spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction the heart of man is haughty, lifted up. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, For everyone, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. 
Psalm 37 that we read at the beginning. The first half of that says, Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. And the reason I know that that's connected with pride is because the second half of that verse, the parallel half, says, But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And that's our segue into the second piece here, which is the outcome of humility. If if that's the outcome of pride, let's look at the second half of those same verses. Proverbs 11.2, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. That's inevitable. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whatever the spoil is of of pride, it pales by comparison with the blessedness of the lowly. Proverbs 18, 12, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And again, Psalm 37, 10 through 11, Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. Literally in the Hebrew, he will not be. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And one more on the outcome of humility, Proverbs 22.4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. I outlined the word humility and the words the fear of the Lord because we're going to talk about that connection in just a moment. Pride and humility have radically different outcomes And that's because God takes the pride or the humility of man very, very personally. When you study the book of Proverbs, you find that it often presents the painful consequences of foolishness and sin and the pleasant consequences of wisdom and righteousness without explicitly declaring that those consequences come from the hand of God. Now, that doesn't mean they don't come from the hand of God. Every consequence comes from the hand of God. But I want to point out that in many cases, Solomon and the other writers in Proverbs present the consequences of foolishness and wisdom without directly pointing out that they originate from God. They simply say, if you you do this, here's what will happen. We just saw several verses like that. But something very interesting happens In a great many of the passages, indeed most of the passages in the Old and New Testaments that talk about man's pride or man's humility, in most of those passages, the Bible declares that God deals with pride and humility very personally and very directly. He doesn't delegate. James puts it very succinctly. In James 4, verse 6, kind of putting together a couple of different things from the Old Testament, James summarizes. And he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that word opposed, God opposes the proud. In the Greek, that word means does battle against. See, James is not saying that proud people make God uncomfortable. 
He's saying God actively wages war against those who are prideful. And by the way, that passage, in that passage, as in James' entire epistle, those whom he is addressing are the ones that he calls my beloved brethren. He's talking to Christians. And in that context, specifically in chapter 4, he's rebuking Christians for committing spiritual adultery by making themselves friends of the world. Pride is at the very root of that infidelity toward God that characterizes far too many who belong to Christ. In the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, after Mary had received the promise from God that she would give birth to the Son of God and that His name would be Jesus, she immediately got up and went to visit her relative Elizabeth, who was at that time carrying in her womb a child who would become named John and whom we would know as John the Baptist. When Mary came into the room, John leaped in Elizabeth's womb. I've heard of babies kicking. John leaped. That meeting, that time together that those two women shared that day wasn't your typical family visit. Look at Mary's amazing declaration to Elizabeth in this passage and notice how much of it speaks with great certainty about the fact that God will bring down the proud and will exalt the humble. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. And He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. (laughs) That passage is loaded with theology. This is a lady who knew her Old Testament. But what I want you to note is how dominated her words are by the theme of how God deals with pride and humility in men. The most repeated word in that passage is the word he. And the one who's doing all the humbling and all the exalting is God. Here are a couple of other passages in Proverbs that make the same point. Proverbs 15, verse 25, Yahweh, the Lord, will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. It's amazing how many times in the Old Testament widows, orphans, and aliens are the ones who are spoken of when God speaks of the humble and the lowly. Proverbs 16, verses 4 and 5, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Look at these passages from Isaiah. And there are many, many others like this that I could cite that say the same thing. 
And notice what is singled out as the essence of the sin that will provoke the fierce outpouring of God's wrath when the day of the Lord comes around. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The proud look of man will be abased. That means laid low. And the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. How's that for a loving God? He is loving and He is just. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus says God, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put and I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I hope we get the point. God takes pride personally and He deals with it directly in every case. All right, so if we know that God acts very directly and very decisively when it comes to abasing the proud and exalting the humble, that should tell us that it's really important for us to understand what God means by the words pride and humility, right? We all have our own ideas about what identifies a person as proud or humble. But as we've often seen, God's Word tends to turn our definitions on their heads. So let's test our definitions against the ones we find in Scripture. I'm going to first come at this kind of in reverse by posing the question, what is it that the Bible considers to be the opposite of pride? If you're like me, your immediate answer will be, well, that's easy. The opposite of pride is humility. And there are many verses in the Bible that confirm that that understanding. But that's not the whole answer. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. What's the opposite of pride in that verse? It's the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 15.33, it says, The fear of the Lord is instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. According to that verse, the fear of the Lord is the starting point to obtaining wisdom, and humility is the starting point for obtaining honor. And parallel, The parallelism in that verse is interesting because the second half is flipped from the first. The fear of the Lord is associated with humility. Proverbs 28, verses 25 and 26. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. Arrogance is contrasted with trust in the Lord. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. In that passage, arrogance is defined as trusting in your own heart rather than trusting in the Lord And humility is defined as trusting in the Lord. And and, and throughout the Old Testament, the one you trust is the one you fear. 
You trust in the one whom you consider to actually be in control over well-being and calamity. Proverbs 31, verse 30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. For many women, charm and beauty are cause for great pride. But by God's reckoning, the woman who fears the Lord is the one who receives the praise that's actually worth having. The fear of the Lord is the characteristic that pushes aside self-exaltation, self-focused pride and vanity, and replaces it with the godly humility that God himself finds praiseworthy in men. Proverbs 22, verse 4 says, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Humility is presented together with the fear of the Lord as one package with one set of results. Riches, honor, and life. I hope you see a pattern. (laughs) Where am I going with all those verses? The opposite of pride in the Bible isn't humility in and of itself. It certainly isn't humility the way the world thinks of humility. The opposite of sinful pride as God reckons it is the true humility that proceeds from the fear of the Lord. The flip side of that is that the pride that God so vigorously opposes proceeds from the failure to fear the Lord. So what does that mean? What is the fear of the Lord? That's a message all by itself. I did a message a while back called The Fear That Attracts that focused on the Bible's answer to that question. I don't want to rehash that message here, but I will give you the essential conclusion from it. The fear of the Lord is personally knowing who God is and knowing, therefore, that He is the one and only source of all true harm and of all true good. You can look at Isaiah chapter 41 and 45, at Jeremiah chapter 10, in the interplay between the ridiculous idols of men and the one true God. And you'll see where I get that from. The fear of the Lord is knowing His attributes, His character, His holiness, His perfection, and knowing, therefore, that He alone determines blessing and curse, well-being and calamity. And humility is acting in keeping with that fear. Acting, not thinking. Acting in keeping with that fear. Humility, as God defines it, is not a feeling. It is, a sub- it is submission to God in obedience based on the appropriate fear of God. By the way, genuine humility is not self-deprecation. It is God-exaltation. It seems ironic to me that the world's concept of humility ends up being as much about self as the world's concept of pride. It's just from a different angle. You see, self-loathing is still all about self. When I did a Google search on the definition of humility, the very first definition that popped up said humility is a low view of one's own importance. See, the world sees humility as considering yourself to be unimportant and inconsequential. And so the world loves pride and despises humility because nobody wants to be inconsequential. It really doesn't matter what people want. It matters what God declares. And God declares that he hates man's pride 
But he also declares that he didn't redeem us so that we would be of no value or consequence. He saved us to make us ambassadors of the Most High God. To know that his presence in us is that which makes us valuable and useful for his eternal purposes. If you've been made a a child of God by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then godly humility most certainly is not about considering yourself to be of no value to men or to God. In fact, it's not about considering yourself at all. It's about being so consumed by the consideration of God that you find your only value in Him. Consumed by the consideration of His character, His works, His way, and His will, so that that's what defines your whole world view and your entire self-concept. Man's insatiable quest for self-esteem is as futile as snipe hunting. God never intended for your esteem to be directed toward you. He intended for all of it to be directed toward Him. Only then will you know what it means to have value and worth and usefulness for His eternal purposes. And even that value points right back to Him. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Godly humility is simply not about self at all. It's too busy being about God to be concerned with self. The only value or usefulness you will ever have will be entirely a function of the value that you place on God. All right, who is our reference point? Who is our example to help us understand how all this works so that we can be clear about what godly humility means and how it affects the way we live. Well, once again, the Iwana Sparky's answer hits the nail on the head. Our perfect example is Jesus. In Philippians 2, Paul issues a foundational command to every Christ follower. He says, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us what that attitude is. He says that In taking on our humanity, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself how? By becoming obedient to his Father without reservation. Now, do you think Jesus had a low opinion of himself? Of his own value and usefulness? This is, this is the guy that the Jews kept taking up stones to stone to death because they, they believed that he was making himself equal to God. And he was. They interpreted his words rightly. This is the one who declared sins to be forgiven and then dem- demonstrated with miracles that his words were indeed effective to for- forgive sins. He declared illnesses to be healed and people who were lame from birth and blind from birth leapt, leaped and saw He told his disciples to pray to the Father in his name, and he accepted the worship of men. And in Revelation 22, he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and he meant that he's everything in between as well. So did the humility that, the humility of Christ that we are commanded to duplicate mean that he had a low opinion of himself? Certainly not. 
See, the proof of his humility, the very essence of his humility, consisted of the fact that he subordinated self to the Father. He set aside every consideration of self in order to submit to his Father's will in obedience all the way to the point of death. That is humility as God defines it. The very humility that it commands of you and me. Humility, quite simply, is submitting to God in obedience because you know who God is. Many of you are familiar with the amazing passage in Isaiah 6 in which Isaiah, the prophet, beholds the one he calls the king, Yahweh of hosts, sitting on his throne in glory and majesty with the train of his robe filling the temple and the seraphim proclaiming, the angelic beings proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are filled with his glory. I love that passage, but it wasn't until this week that I became convinced that I'd misunderstood something about it that ends up being pretty important. After Isaiah beheld God, he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. See, I always thought that that was the point of humility for Isaiah. That was godly humility when he recognized the woe and the dread that applied to him because of God's holiness and his unholiness. But that awareness of sin and shame is not the same thing as what the Bible calls humility because Jesus had humility and he never sinned. See, what that is, what Isaiah experienced, that's called contrition. Knowing how grievously unholy you are in the light of God's holiness, knowing how desperate your condition is because that's the case, that's a necessary humiliation by which God brings you to humility. For us who are sinners, contrition has to happen. And it only happens when we truly behold God. For Nebuchadnezzar, it took seven periods of time. That was either months, months or years, but it was, it was an extended period of time. For Isaiah, it took a moment of beholding God. But again, contrition isn't what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2 because Jesus never had to be contrite about anything. He never sinned. What Paul is talking about when he speaks of Christ's humility, the humility that God commands of us, is obedience. After Isaiah cried out in desperation over his own uncleanness in the light of God's holiness, God sent an angel to touch his lips with a coal of fire from an altar, from the altar before God. And that angel declared Isaiah's sins to be taken away, forgiven. And it's what happens next that gets to the heart of humility. Isaiah said to God, here I am, send me. See, that's godly humility. That's submission of self to God. Now, how do I know that that's when Isaiah reached the point of humility? Because that's when his response lines up perfectly with the response that Paul describes of Christ in Philippians 2. Jesus, in effect, said to his Father, Here I am. Send me. Jesus, who had spent eternity in perfect union with the Father and the Spirit in unapproachable light, came down from heaven and he took on the limitations of humanity. He submitted himself to his Father's will by becoming obedient all the way to the point of death. That's godly humility. The humility that God requires of us is submission of self to God in the form of unreserved obedience. 
And pride is the exact opposite. It is the refusal to submit self to God in obedience. What you know about God, how you feel about God, or what you say about God does not constitute humility in the eyes of God. Humility is submitted obedience. There are far too many professing Christians whose words about their submission to God are flatly contradicted by their deeds. Some willfully violate God's design for marriage and sexual purity while making noises about wanting to walk in a manner worthy of their calling in Christ. Some cheat on their taxes. Some freely steal music and movies and software. Some tear down their wives or husbands at home while putting on a really nice facade in public, especially in church. And at the foundation of all those hypocrisies is the failure of the fear of God. They claim to to love God and fear God and to desire to honor Him, but they don't bother to actually behold God in His Word. And even on the rare occasion when they actually do behold Him based on His revelation of Himself, they pick and choose which parts of His clearly revealed will they deem to be worthy of their submission and obedience. That is not humility. That's the same pride that resulted in the downfall of man. When you ignore or replace God's word with your own nonsense and then live according to that nonsense, that is nothing but ugly, sinful pride. This is an all or nothing proposition, guys. Humility, by definition, always submits self to God. None of us does that perfectly. Beloved, let's not act like we don't understand the assignment. I don't think anyone in this room is too dense to recognize sin as sin when the Holy Spirit points it out. If there's some piece of your life that you're withholding from submission to God's will, the likelihood is that you already know what it is because the Spirit's really good at convicting. You know you're not obeying Him, and that disobedience is founded on nothing better than arrogant self-exaltation. I'm out of time, but let me just say, James says that God wages war against pride. And beloved, this side of heaven, he will relentlessly wage war against every vestige of pride in those whom he has redeemed to be his own. We need to be clear on how God measures pride versus humility when he looks at our hearts and lives. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. This week we kind of talked about God's definition of pride and humility. Next, next week we're going to talk about how pride and humility play out in the life of the child of God. So I hope you'll stay with us. Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, declaring without any ambiguity that you take our pride and our humility seriously. May you work in our hearts, Father. May you pierce our hearts so that we are laid low before you until we respond by submitting every piece of our lives and our hearts to you in obedience. Father, that is when we will know joy. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.